Hey, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs, you guessed it, of all kinds. Today, we're talking about the idea of measuring and capturing experiences. This is one of the primary challenges in both philosophy and social science, and how we come to understand the outside world through our experiences has long challenged so many thinkers, researchers, and not to mention ourselves. This challenge is keenly felt in customer experience as well as other areas of experience design. You know, we think about companies are always trying to better understand their customers so they can hopefully better serve them with products that delight them and services and experiences that make their lives better. Now, how to, how they measure those is one of the big questions that organizations and companies are trying to figure out. So things like net promoter scores and dashboards, there's really this drive to try to capture and measure those experiences. But one of the questions we really want to dig into today is how effective are these measurement strategies? And how much do these approaches and measurements help us understand the actual lived worlds of those who are having those experiences? So to explore these questions on Experience by Design podcast, we have author extraordinaire, and I mean extraordinaire, the guy puts out more books than the U.S. Treasury puts out dollar bills. He also writes for a variety <laughs> of different outlets. He's a speaker and a consultant and all around nice guy, Greg Kilstrom. Greg's newest book is called Meaningful Measurement of the Customer Experience. And in this book, he gives guidance on how to create a customer-centric culture that prioritizes customer needs while aligning internal teams around a common goal. That's a quote. And this idea of alignment around metrics and measures that matter is a key one that a lot of companies are wrestling with, trying to figure out and trying to understand. So on this podcast, we discuss best practices used across different companies and things he's seen in his own podcast, as well as his consulting with these organizations. But we also explore how we might provide better practices, not just best practices, but better practices for increasing our understanding of customers, their experiences, as well as their worlds. And in doing so, in talking about how we capture these experiences through different measurement strategies, we also explore the importance of employee experience which is, as I talk to more and more people, something that many organizations are really wrestling with and how we can connect customer employee experiences to create better overall experiences for all stakeholders. And how do we capture what we're doing in a way that lets us know if it's working or not? It was great to talk to Greg about all these topics along with all of his books, which again, there are many books and we hope you enjoy our conversation. As I was saying, I got this car, right? And and as I was checking out, and I, I say this, Greg, because I know you, you've been writing, writing a lot about metrics. They hand me a, an iPad template, right? They had me an iPad and say, um, here's a survey. And immediately I'm thinking, why are you giving me a survey when I'm buying the car? I'm like, is it about my customer experience? Is it evaluating you know, how I'm going to, uh, what I recommend? All this stuff. No, no. One of the questions on there was, have you or anybody you known ever um, had a uh, had to repair a tire? And I went. I looked at the guy. I said, "What is this?" And he's like, "What?" I said, "Have I ever known anybody, or have I ever had to repair a tire?" He just looked at me blankly. And there are a lot of questions about how many miles do I plan on driving, and all these other questions that had nothing to do with service. Yeah. And what it ended up being was they wanted to use this survey to try to sell me. <laughs> upsell me on mm. different things at that point in the spying process, like the warranty and ch oil changes and all other business. So it was like this weird kind of back channel way of trying to upsell me at a point of, it should be like this point of, you know, um, elation. I'm getting a new car. Right. And now right. I'm feeling like they're trying to sell me on more outside of the buying. It was just weird. Yeah, it's like, you know, let you have the moment of getting a new car, which is to your point, you know, it's it's kind of a cool moment. And, you know, that that um, buyer's high or whatever you want to call it only right. lasts for a little bit anyway. So, like, why 
why interfere with that? I mean, yeah, like I'm sure some um, analytics or data scientists like had the best of intentions of, well, this is the right time to collect that information so we can upsell or whatever. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you've got to think about context when you're asking people for information because that, you know, it's certainly, it, it didn't make your experience better by having to answer a bunch of questions that are transparently. And I mean, you're in, you're in the business, so to speak. So, you can you probably have a better understanding of that, but anybody can probably see that for what it is to some degree. And I asked the dude about the tire thing. I'm like, you know, I live in New England, right? He's like, yeah, but he's like, you know, the company that owns us is in Texas. And I said, okay, so why not the first question be, what region do you live in? And then have different surveys, you know, quote unquote surveys for where you live in the region. And he just looked at me, he's like, I, I, I don't know. I'm not that guy. I'm not the survey guy. I'm like, number one, it's not a survey. Let's just start there. And why not be transparent and tell me, we, we give you this uh, questionnaire in order to determine whether what other kinds of services might be most beneficial and useful for you as you start on your car journey, your ownership journey of this car. So we want to continue to support you in any way we can from this point going forward. Right. It was right. just weird. And I was, you know, I'm just, I think I need to write a blog. I'm just bothered. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and, and this stuff is, I mean, that that's a very particular buyer's moment. But I mean, you know, as I'm, I'm working a lot in the um, third party cookie deprecation, you know, so like there's a whole there's a whole thing where, you know, advertisers and marketers are going to be getting less information about customers. And so they need to collect more more data on them. But I mean, a few things here. One, they've got to present the you, the case for you of like, why in the world do you want to fill this out anyway? Because could you opt out at that? Could you just say, no, I'm not interested? I mean, and and in which case, what does that do to the car buying process or whatever? But like, if it was presented to you as, hey, we want to help you make the most of your car, fill these out, even if that's a semi-transparent sales pitch, you know, because again, we're all grownups here, but right, like... Right even if it's semi-transparent, even if it's couched as we want to help you and by giving us more information, we're going to help you. That that's, you know, brands need to just at least get to that. That's like, that's like low bar, but like they need to at least get there. (laughs) Table stakes. Yeah. Is there, I mean, is there a, you know, in your experience, a lack of education on the, on the part of oftentimes you know, folks working in organizations in terms of how do we even think about approaching kind of the customer experience in terms of if we want to get more information, want to get more data. Um, you know, as these kind of shifts are taking, you know, you, you mentioned um, quickly in there that we're entering this new stage in which we're advertisers are getting less data. You know, and it's interesting because um, at the time of recording this anyway, you know, Facebook slash Meta just like put out their their earnings and their their stocks tanked 22% because um, ad, like ad revenue went down and they blamed iOS for having their the ability to to for consumers to opt out of um, yeah. tracking and and so th- this got me you know this is an interesting question because there's a tension between this and then Google like did straight huge profits and they they kind of run on the same model so there's an interesting idea in terms of what data do organizations need in order to kind of get get information on consumers so I'm curious to hear a bit about from your experience some of the the pieces of information that that seem to be or might be most salient kind of going forward, especially as we're seeing this kind of tech war um, or I don't know cold war in terms of who can get what data. You know, what are some of the pieces that that you see going forward that are going to shape how we understand consumers or how how organizations yeah, I mean, understand? I think it's it's not even so much that they're different; it's that brands are going to need to collect them for themselves instead of relying on third parties. So, I mean, right now, the typical you know the typical brand, you know, if you're a CPG company, you know, if you're selling bubble gum or tissues or something like that, you, chances are you don't have a very close relationship with your customers because they're buying your stuff at Walmart or Target or whatever, and Walmart and Target have the info on the customers. You're just you're selling boxes of of product, you know, and so you're you're one step removed. So then, you know, we we all we've all seen 
the brand as publisher, you know, all of a sudden these companies that why are, why do they have a blog now and a, almost a magazine, you know, they're doing this because they're trying to collect consumer data. Why are there subscription services and memberships and, and all those kinds of things? It's because traditionally, and still, they're still doing this until, um, you know, until late 2023, I believe is the latest deadline, at least of, of the third party cookie deprecation. But, um, they're basically stitching together a bunch of third-party data that advertisers are collecting from all over the web with, I would say, at sometimes dubious um, consent and, and privacy and everything like that. Um, so they can do this without having a direct relationship with the customer. The difference is going to be they've either they form a direct relationship with their consumers or they know almost nothing about them unless they can have broker some some relationship with a with a distributor or a partner. So this is where, you know, there's going to be a few big winners. So, you know, I would say Google wins no matter what happens. They have set <laughs> themselves up. And I mean, there's been a lot of even in the last week, you know, as of this recording, like there's been a lot of change even in in that world of how they're going to handle all of this this stuff. But <clears throat> In any scenario, they win because they're everywhere and they're collecting everything about everyone wherever they go because everybody uses Google Analytics and everybody, you know, it's they're just kind of ubiquitous in the process. Facebook, Meta, you know, some some others like that, they're they're in an interesting place where they can collect everything that I do on Facebook, Instagram, whatever, WhatsApp, what you know, any anything that they have access to, but outside of that, they're 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 going to lose access so it becomes it becomes a very interesting play where even the facebook slash meta component of this becomes very different in a couple of years and i do i do wonder like you say instant you know facebook knows about me in terms of what i like on instagram well then it knows i like puppies and i don't know how particularly useful that information may be <laughs> that i like right. puppies and uh, pictures of um you know like koalas so I, I guess if they want to target market me for like a, a weird kind of metaverse puppy koala hybrid, then I'm totally their guy and they right. should, they should send me that. But other than that, I always, and maybe I'm just naive, but I'm always wondering like how particularly useful is this in terms of not outreach, but actually in terms of conversion. And it reminds me of like NASCAR, you know, am I going to buy a product because it's on Jimmy Johnson's car or is it? We need to be there because everyone's there. And if we're not, then we feel like we're invisible. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I do. I do wonder in the, you know, in the sea of logos on, you know, any of those things, you know, NASCAR is a great example because there's just so many logos right. in, in such a small space. It, yeah, I, I wonder. I mean, it might be about um, I don't know that much about that. You know, in particular, it might be about other opportunities and, you know, getting it, getting the name on the car is just, you know, is just one thing. But, but yeah, I, I wonder if there's really that much brand lift um, in that or to your point, it's just kind of a follow the leader kind of thing. Well, it's another quick story. You know, you talk about what, what, what things influence consumer behavior, right? And to what extent does the touchpoint experience really become the driver in building relationships? When I was buying my car, they tried to sell me on like, if you buy in bulk your, your oil changes, you know, it's like a grand and you can get like, you know, oil changes for like four oil changes or five during a year for how many years? And I said, well, you know, how long does it take to get an oil change here? Right. Because I'm like, I, when I go to, to Jiffy Lube or whatever, I'm paying for convenience. And what's it, what's it here? Right. I mean, it's, well, you know, it might take an hour to sit here minimum to get my oil changed in your waiting room after going online and booking it, you know, and, or it might take longer based on how busy they are. I'm like, so it, even if I'm, you know, is it worth it? And, mm -hmm. you know, what data do I need? What data should they be giving me as a customer? Right. So we've been talking about data from the cost consumer going to the business to target us. What data should the company be giving me to try to be transparent and try to entice around making their value proposition that much more appealing? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's becoming easier and easier to comparison shop. I mean, this has been a trend, you know, for, for a long time, but I mean, it becomes easier and easier with, you know, everybody can do it on their smartphone now and, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I think the, to your point, it's, yeah, it's not just, uh, 
give us your data or else, or else kind of mentality anymore. It's yeah, we, we can, you can easily go to any number of places you can. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's uh, a lot of established and, you know, kind of legacy types of business, I think are, are too slowly coming around to this idea that, yeah, they're definitely not the only game in town. And just because they make it easy on you doesn't mean you're going to do it, right? It's an interesting question in my mind as we talk about it, because if I can go out and hunt out information, but then I'm investigating the company versus them being, you know, to what extent are they transparent in providing me that which I might look for on my own to make it not just convenient, but to be open. Like the, what, what, you know, that, that change in that reciprocity goes from me investigating to them being transparent and it's the same data. You know what right. I mean? Right. But just the virtue of them bringing it to me versus me having to find it out. It's, it's kind of like I might punish my kids less if they're honest and I don't have to find out what they did wrong. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, it comes to trust, you know, trust goes both ways, right? right? Exactly. Like, you need to be able to trust that, yeah, giving you the right information, even if it does take 30 minutes longer each time you change your oil, if they make it easy on you to do it and pay for it right then, and you never have to worry about it to some people, not to everybody, but to, to some people, that's, that's enough. That might be enough for me because I just, I hate even thinking about any of that stuff. So I may just go for the convenient route as long as they give me the upside of it. Not just, again, not just try to take information from me. Mm -hmm. Well, even thinking about, you know, if, if I go to a Jiffy Lube, you know, every time I go, even though I've been before, they'll ask, do you want synthetic or regular? Well, I, don't, I don't even know what the kinds of oil are, but, you know, but they'll ask you this question. I mean, I can even think of these, these small elements of personalization too, that to me would count as convenience also, right? Just already know what oil I'm going to use. Um, you know, based on what I've done before or whatever in, in that. So I think there, there's like the, also this other side I'm thinking about here when we are thinking of transparency and trust is, is this element also of personalization of how much does it feel like we are in a relationship and that you understand who I am. And so it's, it's kind of like having a sense that I know what you're doing with my data as the consumer to the, to the organization. And that's an, an interesting idea. I wonder about, you know, also as we're kind of uh, as increasing conversations are around things like Web3 and, and how do we rethink the use of data and that can we be owners of our own data and then sell it ourselves versus having Facebook do it and like rethinking even this data broker model um, and what that would mean for personalization. So uh, I'm curious about, you know, uh, your thoughts also here in this idea in, in terms of like what, uh, you know, how is personalization also changing this game, right? Like before, what are people coming to expect from organizations and like data, I think is a really interesting point in there, right? I think there's this, this triangulation of trust and transparency in data. So what, what, what's happening in that space? Yeah. So, I mean, it's the, it is kind of the personalization paradox so, is, is people expect brands to know everything about them and offer them personalized service. And yet they often like bulk at giving information that would help the brand do this. Right. Yeah, so right. it's a, you know, you can't, you can't have it both ways. Right. So it does. To me, this is not a consumer's problem. This is a brand's problem. And I work with, you know, I'm actively working with a couple of brands on this right now as far as how they actually do personalization, you know, omni channel, not just, you know, getting emails tailored or whatever, but like cross channel, omni channel personalization. But it does require a lot of data, but you've got to show the value that you provide. So, um, you know, that's, that's incumbent on the brands. Uh, I mean, just like the survey example, that we were talking about earlier, there's got to be, you know, uh, like we are asking for this, but in exchange, you will get, you know, we ask for X, you get Y, you know, if you mm -hmm. sign up for a membership, you're going to get exclusive offers. You're going to get access, early access to products. You're going to be, you're going to game, we'll gamify it and you get a status coin or whatever, you know, whatever motivates the, the individuals. But that's got to come up front um, more and more because yeah, more and more. I mean, we've all, we've all had our data stolen. I mean, this is a sad state of affairs. Like mm. all, every single human I believe has had their data stolen in some degree or the other at this, at this point in time, how much of it and how detrimental it is. Like it varies by the, the platform that was hacked, but it's like, we're all skeptical. Some of us way more than others, but um, you know, being knowing both sides of it, I'm a little less, I'm a little more willing to give some of my data if I can understand what I'm going to get from it. Right. But 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still, you know, everyone's everyone's reading the headlines of, you know, who got hacked today, basically. Who yeah. did get hacked today? Do we have those headlines <laughs> available? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I should have uh, checked this morning. Have oh, I sure. been pwned.com? This is right, right. Right. What, what should I be? What do I have to confess? What, what should I be worried about? Right. Should definitely, uh, right. clear, use my VPN more. <laughs> it's funny because even even to that too. I mean, speaking of like, it's the the dark UX or like dark uh, dark customer experience or, or is that you know so often like to this point because everybody probably has had some level of of data stolen or hacked. Um, you know, even if it's just like a password and username of an old account, right? Like right. I've, I see that like at least twice or three times a year now. It's like some account I haven't used in five years is was hacked. Like I guess I should change my or password. My Friendster account was hacked yeah, or something like that. Yeah. My MySpace, you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, you know, but it's interesting because the uh, given that prevalence, like we we are seeing. I'm, I'm sure you'll see these too. But we, I get junk mail where it's like. You know, we have we've noticed that you've been like looking at a lot of websites that you probably don't want people to see. So if you send us four Bitcoin, we'll, uh, right. we'll delete your your right. thing, and you're like, it's like a you know blackmail, <laughs> like right. junk mail, black junk mail. Um, and that's interesting too to even think about that. You know, seeing other kind of more nefarious groups try to also pick up on that and then um, play in that. And, and it, so it's interesting too because there is this this kind of element of emotion as part of this too, right? It, it's that. I want to feel safe. And, and I think part of brand trust, um, you know, delves into this element of safety more and more because our data is, it's also abstract, right? It's like, I, I guess it's, you know, browsing history and it's like cross website tracking that Facebook used to do, but now Firefox makes it easy to not let them do that, you know, in different elements like that. And so even these ideas in terms of understanding what it is that is being tracked. And then to your point, Greg, as long as I know what I would get out of the experience or the relationship, then then that actually feels okay. And it's it's interesting because that's not you know when I like make this more concrete, it's that if I gave someone my resume, that's giving my data in order to get an exchange ultimately for for work or something like that. And so that doesn't feel weird. But then it's like, wait, it, it, wait, you're tracking when I went from this website to that website, and then when I bought this, and and, and I. Um, and the experience that we all had now too, where it's like you mentioned something to a friend or we're talking right now and then we go look on our phone later and there's an ad for NASCAR. Right. And, and that's weird, <laughs> right? Right. right. Uh, or, I mean, you know, you're, uh, you know, you, you're going to see car ads for the next three years, even though you just bought a car. I know, right. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. so it's, <laughs> like, it's, it's stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, I think this is why, you know, in Europe it's GDPR, California's got CCPA, like there's other, there's other regulations and, and stuff in, in the works elsewhere and, and stuff like that. It's like, there is good, there are good reasons is that, yeah, I don't, when I, when I use Facebook, I know what the deal is. I know everything I look at is being tracked and, and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. So, you know, I don't know what I would do differently, I guess, but I, I'm aware of, I'm aware of that. And so when I use it, I just, I just know that when I, you know, when I do other things, you know, when I search on Google, I know that Google is, is tracking what I search for so on and so forth. I think the, the challenge for, for consumers is all of the stuff that they're not aware of, or that they're just trying to like live their lives and like look for something on the web. And they don't necessarily need that to be, tracked and and fed into a profile that's stitched together and sold to companies that they have they don't want their to have their information i think you know i think it's i i i'm in a hundred percent support of that it's gonna make things really challenging for brands and, and marketers but you know what it's that just because that's difficult doesn't mean that it's it's a bad thing i think you know brands brands have the opportunity to get in better touch and have closer relationships with the their customers and you know i don't think that's a bad thing either mm-hmm. yeah I, I would agree too i mean are, are there are there you know depending on what you can or can't share or just examples that you know of too that that you're seeing organizations that are taking kind of some good steps because i think that's a, a really great point that the the way that brands need to work with data as these these you know depreciation information is is taking place um is difficult because the existing model is to use data and buy it and sell it in in this format right this kind of aggregate way of stitching together but as we move to more you know i don't know if it's privatized data or just protected data in privacy um are you seeing anything that that's like that that feels good that we're seeing brands like taking kind of better steps whether it is through a subscription or through, you know, again, kind of a, a blog or magazine or other elements like that in terms of get to know you. 
Anything that stands out? Yeah, I mean, just to just to talk broadly about it, and you know, without without going into too many you know specific brands. I mean, I do think when when brands give you know, there's there's several different levers that that they can kind of pull. But you know, you see a lot of brands now are having their own apps and and memberships and giving exclusive access, giving early access, um, allowing design of their own products, and you know all of those kinds of things. I think that's that's the way to do it. That's actually offering value. You know, they're get, I mean, the exclusive, the early access that just means they're not letting other people have access mm-hmm. at the same time. So you know, it is what it is. But you know, giving expanded access or, or other other perks to people that are willing to to form a closer relationship with the brand. I think that's the right way to go. And that way, you know, they learn more about the customer. The customer actually gets something in return. And all of those other people out there, you know, on the web that might, you know, if they're interested in, you know, shoes one day out of every, you know, they buy one pair of shoes a year or something like that. They're not getting inundated with shoe ads because they just so happen to stumble upon a site. But the people that buy shoes every month or more than that, um, uh, you know, that's then they're actually getting value because they're getting access and 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 stuff like that. So it's a win-win. It, I know you do work in employee experience. And as we were talking about this, you know, shifting to that, because I teach a course in employee experience, I just, it just dawned on me that, you know, one of the things I've talked about in my classes is this companies who say, we'll know when someone's going to quit before they do, right? This, this, this claim. Right. Yet, you know, by the employee data and employee dashboards, yet everyone's surprised by the great resignation. I'm like, well, if you could predict that people were going to quit before they knew it, then why are you shocked that people are quitting? Right. right. I mean, there seems to be a failure in the promise of the technology here. <laughs> right. Um, we know people are going to quit. Well, then you should have seen this coming, but yet you're surprised. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think, you know, with the data stuff, and I talk about this with my students a lot understanding what it's telling you and realizing the limitations of what it can't, especially around the quantitative data that is data without context, as we talked about, right? You look for shoes one time, now you're getting inundated with ads. Or, you know, um, I remember one time my daughter who was on a swim team, I was buying her a bathing suit from a swim outlet.com. And then I started getting ads of with women in bikinis, which was moderately embarrassing when I pulled my laptop up when I was teaching class. Like, Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't even, I was looking at bikinis. I was looking at, you know, actual technical, you know, race suits for my daughter. My point yeah. is, you know, what is the limitation? I mean, are people over promising and under delivering? And is it, you know, what is that balance between the types of data we're using to actually give us insights and not just, um, you know, these, you know, faux patterns that we're in, you know, thinking are meaningful in ways that they're not. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's a few, a few things that come to mind. I mean, one is just, you know, different types of data are, are useful at, in, in different ways. And so, you know, quantitative stuff, I mean, I use the example and I think it applies on the employee side as well, but I mean, I use the example of net promoter score. I don't, you know, I I've written a few articles about this. I I'm not here to say that it's a bad thing per se, but it's a good relative measure of something over time. But if you were to go and say, our net promoter score this week is down. Oh my God, you know, hair on fire. What are we going to do? It's really, really difficult to use quantitative data like that and, and make a meaningful change. And yet again, seeing trends over time, comparisons year over year, quarter season, however you, however you compare things, it's useful. So, I mean, you know, to, to use that, um, to extrapolate that to the, the employee example, the data that they're collecting, yes. I mean, you know, there's so many dependencies, right? It's like, how big is the sample size? Or is the platform that you're using comparing across the entire universe of their customers? Is it only within your company, in which case the sample size is small? How long have they been measuring this? And so what, what is normal? You know, what do we even know about that? You know, what is normal in one company versus another is com- can be completely different. And I think, you know, this is where like, Let's not forget about the people part. Uh, you know, it's so like I, wait, I deal every. You mean there's people involved in this? <laughs> right, oh, wait exactly. A wait, wait, slow down. I didn't realize that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like everything. Everything I do, you know, in my consulting, it it 
involves technology, but you know, there's people in process and people in processes are, are where technology tends to break down more than the technology itself. A platform works as well as a platform is. And, you know, sometimes it's the best fit for the job and sometimes it's, it's legacy or whatever, but people are where this stuff breaks down. You know, managers can't stop being managers because they have, you know, employee net promoter scores in place or engagement scores. Like they've got to be smart enough and have the, you know, emotional intelligence enough to be able to manage, you know, people and be able to read what's going on with the numbers. So I think, yeah, you know, I think it's as, as always technology is brought in as a silver bullet and it's, it's only as good as the people using it. I think the two headlines here are number one, Greg says net promoter score is useless. So we got that one down. Oh, man. And the other one is that there are people involved. So those are, those are pretty, two pretty good headlines for the podcast, I think. Nice. nice. <laughs> well, it's funny, right? It's like, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend this manager to your friends and family? I mean, <laughs> you know, we could, we could always run with that, but it is this, I like this idea of this intersection, right? And, and that things, nope. And I do wonder about, I do talk about with my students, the attraction of the quantitative, especially for managers, is that it takes out the, the anxiety of making a decision because we can say, well, the data told us X, Y, and Z, right? Versus, you know, going into the uncertainty, the sense-making, the stickiness, the, the nuance is gray. And that requires people to make a decision that they then can be accountable for. And I do wonder on like some kind of, and I'm sympathetic that that can be scary, especially when it, you, 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 you could be to blame versus saying, well, this is what the data told us to do. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, an employee could be less engaged for so many reasons beyond wanting to quit. I mean, there could be something going on good or bad in their, you know, they could be getting married in three weeks and, you know, their, their mind is somewhere else, or, you know, they could have a sick family member or something. And, you know, that's, that's a terrible thing going on. You know, there's, it's not just about where, you know, and so that's where it takes managers and, and leaders to be able to have nuance and, and things like that. Well, it's like, you know, here in Boston right now, Tom Brady retired and I just haven't been able to focus on my work. It's very, <laughs> and he didn't even thank the new England fans and I'm taking it very personal now. Like, I, I can't worry about the customer. I'm in mourning. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's tragedies like that, that, you right. know, like, occur. <laughs> I mean, there's the Ukraine, there's Tom Brady retiring, there's a pandemic, and those are not ranked in, in the appropriate order. I mean, I think we all <laughs> right, know right. what the ranking of that would be. <laughs> How can we know, right? right. You know, I, what, uh, one of the things I'm thinking about too that, that that's kind of floating through here I'm hearing is, is around this notion of how do we see, pull forward, and and make known meaningful trends that we see in, in qual and quant data, right? And so I, I, I appreciate your point where it's, it is like technology is there to help us, um, you know, think in new ways and perhaps, you know, accomplish uh, tasks in, in sometimes more efficient ways, but it's still up to managers and leaders to be able to keep people in the equation, right? Because we are, we're the ones that are using technology. And so, uh, you know, thinking through this idea you know, oftentimes there is the quant bias that we see in organizations because I think Gary's point is exactly right too, that I don't have to then be culpable if if the decision was crappy. It's like the numbers said it, so we just did what the numbers said. But really like the meaningful decisions and meaningful change also takes place through qualitative, right? And through the other forms of data. And so I think this interest, this, this idea around meaningful trends is is um, something that I'm, I'm, I'm sticking on because I'm trying to think through this in terms of how do we help, uh, you know, leaders and managers, you know, and also just in organizations, how do we help create the space that it's it's like it's known and important to kind of use both kinds of data in order to see these actual meaningful trends? So folks are not punished when they're drawing on qualitative data, or they're not punished if, they, if a decision doesn't go super, super well in one direction, but the qualitative data says like, but it's a longer term play. Like we have to stick with it a bit longer or something, right? Because the time scale can be different when we're drawing on qual data too. Um, <laughs> So I'm I'm curious your thoughts in this space too, in terms of like how do we help promote that in organizations that it's okay to to use both kinds of data to see trends? Yeah, I mean I think it's numbers. You know the the num the numbers don't lie. You know there's there's that statement that but but they do require interpretation, right? <laughs> yeah, so it's yeah. like and I think I think that's where 
you know, you don't have to be a data scientist to be able to interpret those numbers. And maybe you need the help of a data scientist because there's a lot more going on behind the scenes that, um, you know, I, I mean, I think, you know, quantitative, it keeps us from being so anecdotal and, you know, all of the bias, you know, whether it's recency or anchor, or, you know, all of those cognitive biases, like the quantitative data really helps. It protects us from all of those, those biases in a way. And yet there's a million ways to read the quantitative stuff. And I, th I think that's where, you know, you've got to be, you've got to, as a manager, you've got to be paying attention and understanding what's really going on emotionally intelligent enough again to not let your your biases get in the way and to be able to read the numbers but at the end of the day we're we're not at a point where a machine is going to tell us you know what what is going on without us being able to interpret a little bit of that i, I just especially when it comes to managing people you know when maybe when it comes to managing systems and machinery and and stuff like that that's that that's a completely different thing but when it comes to people you know, it, we're just not there yet. Mm -hmm. Which is, which is good. I mean, it's like one of those, those things that, that is as helpful, as useful as AI is in terms of being able to crunch numbers in new ways. Right. It can't think like a person. And actually it's, it's funny that, um, and it, this is just a, a weird anthro example to think with, but that traditionally as in, in through the age of enlightenment and reason in, in Europe and into the Americas and then kind of diffusing into the rest of the world, there was this idea that like the stoic and reasonable often, you know, tagged as male character is, is like, that's the ideal right? to be able to kind of pause and, and rationally think. But then when you apply that to AI, it becomes the terminator. It's a horrifying idea because it has no emotion and no actual like compassion and empathy. And, and also just the idea of being able to understand that there's a complex range of emotions and feelings that are part of our work. And so and it's actually much more difficult to to program that AI can't do that. It can't feel the way that a human can. And this is something that always kind of stuck with me too, in that um, the computer models of the quote unquote rational and homo economicus, like the person that can purely coldly calculate, is not your friend. It does not feel good, right? And, and it'll make decisions that'll just like ruin people's lives. Um, and actually, so pointing towards the fact that we actually need to always have kind of human interpretation in this, you know, at least until 21... 35 when AI will become super, super sentient. But until then, there's good work to do. Well, yeah, I mean, to me, um, it's it, ethics is kind of the missing thing with machine, yep. you know, so another, and I don't know that, I don't know how that we've figured out how to introduce ethics into AI. And to your point, I mean, yes, the Terminator, like that's the, the cold calculating, um, you know, this is better, this is better for everyone in the long run. So we're going to do it regardless of the immediate cost. Like mm -hmm. I, you know, there, there's gotta be, you know, before the machines take over, hopefully we will, you know, introduce some, whether you call it ethics, morality, whatever, whatever that might be like, you know, yeah. I, I'm hoping, you know, fingers crossed. I think, I think we have a new movie franchise, not the Terminator, but the calculator. <laughs> this the yeah. Right. And I think that also saying weird anthropological is just a redundant phrase. That's, that's, <laughs> that, that is a good point. Because they are, they're all kind of redundant. You know, it, but it's, I do, it, it is an important thing to kind of keep in mind, right? That especially, and I know, you know, your sign behind you is the Agile brand. And one of the interesting things that I, there was a MIT Sloan, MIT is a school in Cambridge. There was an MIT Sloan study done. Um, and one of the things that was more important in terms of employee burnout or, you know, employees leaving then compensation was actually high rates of innovation and that companies that have high rates of innovation are, co are constantly trying to change can lead to burnout because of the pressure of change of continuous change. And so I also wondered, you know, is there, is there too fast, right? Can we be too responsive? Is, does there need to be more consistency to a kind of true North, regardless of what, we think the quarterlies or the weekly data or the monthly data is telling us. And I think it goes to the short-term versus long-term orientation and that we can be too agile and too quick to move. And not only does it maybe devalue our brand, but it also burns our people out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I'm definitely a proponent of continuous improvement, but that doesn't mean that you know, there, there's improvement and there's, you know, pivoting, you know, a term that I hate even saying, but it is what it is. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you know, there's, um, 
there, there's a lot of things that motivate people and, and, you know, innovation is certainly one thing that can motivate people. But I think in the, in the course of a company's, um, uh, you know, a, a company's life life cycle, there are times where it's, it benefits to innovate and there's times when it take, when it benefits to kind of, um, metabolize that innovation and turn it into processes and systems that work and are repeatable and then go, you know, I I think that itself is an agile process of, you know, you innovate, you, you metabolize, you innovate, you metabolize, and that gives everybody that pause to say, okay, well, okay, now at least I know what I'm doing before we start doing something else. And and yeah, I, I think the startup, startups are fun and it's, you know, it's, it's a fast ride or whatever, but you know, the ones that last are the ones that actually end up turning themselves into a real functioning business that has those processes and, and hierarchy and and some of the stuff that might be thought of as, as not cool early on, but there's a reason why some of these companies have stayed in business and others have failed. You can't party like a college student in your thirties, man. It just, <laughs> right, it just right. it's just going to burn you out. And the older you get, you're like, you look at that, you're like, that just, I, I'm just tired, <laughs> right. you know? And, and uh, you know, there's a time and a place for that, you know, that high rate of turnover and pace and fun. And, uh, but there's another time when you just want to kind of sit at home and, and uh, read a book. and digest or metabolize as you said (laughs) right right. yeah that's a that's a great that's a great verb though too i think um this reminds me of as a project i worked with the client um a few years ago and you know we were doing a set of surveys and interviews with with leaders and organizations and you know one of the questions we asked them about was it was around like how does innovation happen within your organization you know and are there any structures for that and this got me thinking that uh, only, only a few said we had like a dedicated, you know, either like you dedicate a few percent of your, uh, your week to working on ideas that you want to help improve the organization. Or, uh, we have like monthly lunch and learns where, you know, people can sign up and then share a, uh, project they're working on. And it's interesting, uh, because I mean, it's got me thinking about this idea that on one level, uh, it's, it's key to help, you know, employees feel a sense of ownership in their work at an organization. And it's interesting how innovation could be part of that in terms of letting them play into it. Because even we mentioned up top the idea that, uh, you know, some positive moves that we might see brands doing to help uh, consumers feel more engaged or customers feel more engaged with them is that they might be able to work in the co-creation process of like, oh, I submitted, I'm thinking of like Lego ideas where folks can submit ideas for models. And then if the community votes Lego, will then make that model bringing that into an organization too is an interesting space uh, in terms of uh, this. I, I think this idea around employee ownership. So I'm curious in this, and if you've seen elements around this in terms of um, the stick to and the idea that like, how do we help employees? Um, or I mean, I, I guess I'm just curious. So I'll just ask it more broadly, right? What, what's happening in this idea around like employee ownership, um, whether it's things like innovation or dedicating your own creative time in the, in the, in the space, but um as a way, I think, to mitigate what feels very fast all the time, right? That I'm always kind of running, I'm always racing to get that next quarterly number or the KPI or whatever it is. Um, does a sense of ownership change the way that people think about cadence and, and speed? I'm just, I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking through this, but does any of that make yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's um, one one thing I talk about in, in one of my books is this, this concept of extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. So, you know, extrinsic is, you know, as previously mentioned, was the, you know, salary and perks and, you know, all of that stuff. And so, you know, what the, what the studies show is everybody needs a certain amount of money that varies by right. every factor you can imagine. But once you hit that, you're not really motivated more to do better in your job, even if more money gets thrown at you. It's more, I like money and more money is nice. You know, don't we all like it, but it doesn't really help you do a better job. So on the other side is, is intrinsic motivation. So, you know, to kind of, um, with what you're saying here, um, there's lots of different things that intrinsically motivate people. Innovation is one of them, or the ability to innovate is one of them, but not everyone is, 
motivated primarily by that. That's the other thing to kind of keep in mind is some people are, they they're motivated by autonomy, just like leave me alone and let me do my thing and I'll do amazing stuff. But I just, I don't want to be like sitting around the campfire singing songs. Other people are motivated by altruism. So they may want to mentor other people. They may want to also do like CSR work or stuff like that too, but they might be motivated just by mentoring other, you know, more junior employees. Some people just really want to learn. So, you know, so there's all all kinds of these these intrinsic motivators that allow like that's an unlimited source of if you get someone doing the right thing they they're going to put as much time as they want to into that you know above 40 hours a week above whatever you know whatever is expected of them so i think it's key in startups for instance it's definitely key to have people that are motivated by innovation and creativity and and doing new things because you need a lot of that as a company ages and matures, you definitely need some of that, but you also need, you need the people mentoring the, um, the, you know, the more junior staff, cause you want longevity and you want those people to, to learn and grow with the company, you know, so it takes all, it takes kind of all of that. And I think there's ways of measuring that there's ways of figuring out, you know, you may have, you know, 50% of your staff is motivated by one thing. So, okay, by all means, build a program around whatever that is. If it's education, you know, there's some, there's some no brainers there. I mean, education is always, you know, going to be some kind of motivating factor, but, but I do think, you know, this, again, this is where nuance comes in and, and really understanding what motivates individuals um, beyond just, you know, a few things. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, you know, particularly interesting in today's moment of the great resignation, right? And as Gary mentioned before too, that, that organizations on some levels have been caught off guard by the fact that folks are now being like, you know what, I'm actually rethinking the purpose of my work because, you know, health, like extrinsic motivators and demotivators, right? Because, you know, what, what am I doing this for if there's a, you know, a looming virus out there or, or anything else, right? And so I think this is, this is a, an interesting spot because as we think about Employee engagement, you know, going forward, um, you know, something I was, I was reading the, the other day that uh, was surprising is that because there is kind of a labor shortage in, in a lot of organizations now, uh, there's kind of new entrance into into spaces. For example, uh, retirees that had hard time getting a, a job again if they wanted to do a part time work now can do that much easier mm-hmm. because there's there's much more demand for labor in different in different organizations, and that would be on on one level, I think. Uh, a fairly different, you know, set of employee demands and needs on the organization to have, you know, someone that's coming back into the workforce, um, you know, versus someone else that's, that's either getting their first or second job or that that is a, is a mid career. So I think even this is an interesting, like we're entering an interesting spot here, where, um, you know, on one level, the idea of the great resignation is that oh, I'm I'm going to quit, but you know, as, as um, also there's a great piece in the Atlantic that was actually this is a myth that it's about quitting. It's actually about switching for something better. Right. You know, so it's less of a resignation and more of a switch. And so even in this too, like this does have, I think, fundamental implications for how we think about extrinsic and intrinsic motivators as organizations and as leaders for what employees are looking for. Um, and and you know, it's interesting because a lot of the explicit needs are external motivators. I want to get paid better. I want to have a, like a, a nicer. Uh, boss, you know, yeah. but then really like, how do we get to the intrinsic, right? When there's, there's such a big switch happening. So I think this is a, it's an exciting time. I mean, I, I think it's, it is definitely also stressful for organizations uh, to have a lot of turnover and switch, but um, I don't know, yeah. we're, we're, in a, we're in an interesting spot. Yeah. I mean, I think the, and the other thing, um, and I forgot the statistics offhand, but there's a, there's been a record number, uh, particularly in, in within certain demographics of new businesses, starting entrepreneurship and all that. And I, I take that as another, you know, be curious to see how many of those people stay with those new companies. But I, I take that as another way of they weren't getting what they needed intrinsically. I mean, most people don't start a brand new company in order to make a ton of money. So it's it's about something else, right? It's about doing something that you love or having control and and autonomy or you know, something like that over what you're doing over your own destiny. And so I think um a lot of people just you know, I mean, this is, it, it's been a very interesting several years, uh, you know, right before COVID, uh, you know, we were in record low unemployment and employee experience was a whole, was about a whole other different thing of, you know, trying to get 
you know, trying to get new employees, trying to get people to switch jobs, promising, you know, crazy, you know, wellness programs and rock climbing walls and, you know, all, all manner of things to try to attract people over into companies. Now, all of a sudden, it's a very different world. Companies are still struggling to find good people, but it's a very different dynamic out there. So, you know, there, there's been something kind of brewing for a long time. And, you know, COVID, I think, just gave us all this shared experience that, you know, there's there's got to be something better than sitting in front of Zoom, you know, 16 hours a day or even, you know, going to work, you know, if you're in healthcare and having to deal with everything that that those workers have had to do, like, you know, name an industry and it's it, there's been a unique struggle over the last, you know, couple of years. So yeah, I, I think just there's been this reckoning of there's got to be a better way to do, to pay my bills, basically. Right. I'm still trying to figure out like, what can you do when you can't stand your boss, but you're a sole proprietor running your own business? <laughs> right. It's like, you know, what, what, what do you do with that? You know, it's like, you know, besides therapy. And that sounds like a self-help book in the, in the, in the works. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. What if your boss is a jerk and you're it? Um, that, that is, that is an entirely different, maybe consulting space we can, we can kind of enter into. That's right. And, and it also, you know, I, I was in terms of a policy issue, right? Because I was just reading an article this morning. And by that, I mean, I, I read the headline where uh, hospitals are trying to, there's a visa boom for um, nurses from other countries or healthcare workers from other countries to come into the US because of, you know, healthcare, not the lack of healthcare workers. And I can see the same thing happening for teachers because they're like, you know, screw this, right? I'm not going to deal with this mess anymore. And any number of jobs where previously it was, there was a sentiment of, we don't want these people coming in to take our jobs to employers saying, well, we can't find people to take these, you know, sometimes less than desirable jobs. And how are they going to reckon with or how are employers going to reckon with employee experience around increased, you know, visa offerings? And so, like, what is the larger downstream implication from a policy perspective, from a corporate perspective, and from a social perspective as, as these things start to flesh themselves out? Yeah, I mean, there's I think there's a lot to there's a there's a lot there. I mean, um Def policy right now is is going to be restrictive on on some of that stuff, and yet, yeah, when we have a teacher shortage and people are complaining, I mean, you know, this is going to get into politics and you know all sorts of things. You know, people say one thing, but they need something else. You know, they they need teachers and and uh, healthcare workers, and yet their politics say that they're not supposed to. You know, agree right. to certain um, certain things and. You know, I, I I would hope, but I don't have a lot of hope that um, many are able to reconcile that, you know, that that requires a bit of emotional intelligence that I would say might be lacking in, in, in some areas. But we have a better chance of the AI having that emotional intelligence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, putting more money into probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's yeah. We're, we're, what are we paying for in that regard? Um, but that is that is that is interesting it's it's a tough it's a tough spot i I think that um you know it kind of makes me think that how how can we take all these perspectives we've we gain and think through employee experience customer experience and then apply them to public experience um to kind of help you know maybe we need an nps score how likely would you recommend this country to your your neighbors and friends or something or right exactly right (laughs) forget about forget about like you know like birth rate or labor mortality or you know happiness what's what's your country's nps score (laughs) they do have a happiness score i think that's right they do yeah i think like finland is like number one every year or something like that but yeah it's um or at least it's it's right up there but um, yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, the, the other thing of course is there's with any, with any swing, there's kind of the swing back. Right. So, I mean, again, like I kind of mentioned with lots of people starting their own businesses, again, that's going to be really, really satisfying for like 12 months. You know, I've started a few companies in my own, like that's, it's super satisfying for, for a bit. And then it either kind of starts working or it doesn't work. And so, you know, there might be an influx of people that were like, yeah, you know, I thought I hated my job, but the alternatives are, you know, not so good. Or people just literally quitting their jobs without any plan 
I mean, eventually they're going to have to like pay rent, I assume, you know, so like there, there is going to be a reckoning of, of some kind, not, not with everybody. I think hopefully a lot of people move on to something that, that they find more satisfying and, and gives them what they need extrinsically as well. But there is going to be a bit of a reckoning and I don't know, you know, someone I'm sure knows better than me what the time frame is, but year, year and a half or so, like, I think there's going to be a bunch of people looking for similar mm-hmm. jobs to what they used to have and maybe yeah. they'll get better salaries out of it. Right. I think it's another headline. Greg, Greg talks about the joys of swinging. (laughs) Perfect. Greg, we're trying to get clicks here. I mean, you got (laughs) to, we're taking a different track and experience by design in terms of how we, uh, how we publicize and brand ourselves. Whatever it takes to get those clicks. (laughs) Different experience, different experience, different kind of experience and different kind of rating system. I would imagine. Right. Very useful. You know, different kinds of reviews online. Maybe there is an you know, intersection of technology and people are at the center of that activity as well. So Fair I enough. understand from what I'm told. Don't look at my browser history, my cookies. Nice. <laughs> um, that's what you got to watch out for those, uh, those blackmail emails now saying, hey, we've, we've been searching. So just so you know. <laughs> so like, what do you like? What do you see? Like, I know you're very prolific um, in what you do in terms of what you write about. What are you kind of working on now? What are you looking at as the next thing um, that you that needs to be focused on? Or when you talk to clients, what are the, the you know, when they ask you like what's coming next, what are the things that you start to really emphasize with them that they should be thinking about, be on the lookout for, or, or start planning around? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it touches on what we were talking about earlier, which is just, you know, the the consumer privacy and and just move to to brands, you know, owning owning more customer data. That's something I'm actively working on with a number of of clients right now. Um the other thing that this kind of this kind of touches on also is just this this relationship between uh, I'm probably going to get labeled as heretical um, by saying this, but um, this relationship between marketing and customer experience, I feel like it's converging. Like it, it diverged, and now I feel like it's converging again. And so, you know, there's a lot in the CX space that um, will, you know, they'll go to their grave saying that CX is a completely separate practice from marketing, right. and and vice versa. I'm not here to say one way or the other right now, but I'm I'm noticing that marketing is having a harder and harder time and will have a harder and harder time doing its job without taking into more the, account more of those things that have been, let's call it traditionally CX, again, for the reasons we've already talked about, about kind of owning, owning that customer. And so something's going to happen here because um, I, I still don't think most organizations have really understood where to put CX in the first right, place. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, I'm, I'm starting to think about that and, and, you know, I, I, I'm all ears for anyone that wants to talk about that as well. I think that's like, you know, one of the things I often ask people when, you know, they want to talk to me about customer experience and I, I'll ask them, where does it live in your organization? Right. Because mm-hmm. I think that that can be very telling in terms of not just judging their efforts, but understanding their orientation to it. Because CX can be many things, including organizational change. Is it just about, you know, owning the customer, understanding the customer, or is it about making the organization customer centric? Right. Is it about right. changing the organization's outlook and orientation to the customer? Not you know, the idea isn't the customer is there to serve the needs of the organization, but the organization is there to serve the needs of the customer. I think about EX very, very similarly. I was talking with someone the other day, and, you know, I said the difference between employee engagement and employee experience, and to me, is employee engagement is about optimizing the employee for the organization. Employee experience is about optimizing the organization for the employee. I like that. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's about where we, where do we put this in? And, you know, I think it's it's a really interesting point in a you know about moving customer experience or experience design more generally, right? Yeah. Into the yeah. strategy space and not just the um, you know the HR space or the marketing space or the you know um, you know IT or innovations you know user experience space, the product testing space, elevating it into a more central space, and our yeah, organizations I mean- ready to do that. Yeah, I think um, 
you know, the, the question is like, whose job is customer experience? And, uh, you know, my answer to that is I can't, there's rarely a, a role in an organization that isn't or can't be somehow the, um, connected to the customer. And if there is a role that can't be connected to the customer, you should kind of question what that role is and, and why they're doing what they're doing. Right. So again, there, I'm sure there's some, you know, tangential exception or, or whatever, but for the most part, that's, that's true. And um, so to your point about CX being part of, it is, it's part of brand differentiation. It's part of business strategy, you know, as, as you just mentioned as well. Um, it's really hard to make that a department then that is sort of one of many silos. Right. Right. I mean, I I do think a CXO or a chief customer officer or whatever, like totally, you know, I think that that's a, that's a good position to have within an organization, but to, to think of that as they're the owners of the customer experience, how can you do that when IT and HR and, and all, you know, marketing and, and everybody kind of has a piece of that. So, so it, you know, it becomes, um, it becomes a bit of a challenge. And, you know, I think when, when, when experience is done well, and I would, I would lump employee experience into this as well. And I mean, I talk about this in my book, Center of Experience. My, my, the premise there is that organizations should create the center of excellence that melds employee and customer experience together. And it shouldn't just be CX. It shouldn't just be EX, but those two are related enough. They're not directly related all the time, but they're related enough that why not think of experience as a whole and get everybody from the organization involved in, in that instead of relegating it to a couple departments. This is like one of the things that, you know, Adam and I are writing about or or I'm writing about and Adam is talking about writing about. Can't say that alive. What? (laughs) Uh, is, Is this idea that you don't need an owner, you need an integrator, right? You know, this idea of owning it versus integrating it. And so we talk about integrated experience design, you know, and when we talk about experience by design, the podcast or the book or whatever, or the consulting call us is this notion of how do we bring those channels together and integrate them? So they're not working in opposition or in, you know, oppositional forces, but they're working in, you know, integrated, you know, synthesized forces to produce a particular kind of outcome. Yeah. uh, That's, that's great. I like that. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> I like it too. I think I think that it takes a, a different notion of of you know, you know, organizations, everything's political, right? Mm-hmm. And we talked about politics a little bit in society, but you know, organizational politics, keeping, you know, even in you know, public policy and politics, it, we can eat, you know, politicians can lose sight of it's about the people they serve. Organizations similarly can lose sight, it's about the people they serve whether it be employees or customers or communities moving into that stakeholder model and not shareholder model. And that's, that's going to be a culture shift that I think relating back to the great resignation that, you know, it'd be interesting to see as Adam was kind of talking about how organizations who had that more central as however we measure it fared during this than those who didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also the ones that um, have tried um, to tie some ROI to investments and experience as well. I mean, I think that's, right, you know, right. either that or they, they have the faith to, to do, to do it without the results just yet. And the knowing that they will get the results. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's gotta be one of the, other. It, it works more successfully if you can start tying the bottom line to it, because I mean, any, any company with shareholders, as much as they want to be all about the customer, if they can't justify that treating the customer well brings them more dollars, there's going to be conflict. And, you know, so private companies, you know, smaller companies have a little easier time of that, but, um, but, you know, the, the big ones that are successful and that really put customers first, they've, they've proven that and that, you know, they've made it part of their brand. And, and they're the ones that we talk about when we give examples of, you know, the, the Southwest airlines and the, you know, Chick-fil-A's and, you know, all of those in the world that there's like a handful that, do this and, and do it pretty centrally and and their numbers you know their numbers speak for themselves mm. and that's it the numbers don't lie <laughs> cool awesome greg thanks this has been this has been super fun and, and awesome to, to think through the we appreciate the the going on the winding path with us yeah um, yeah no thanks for having me
It's always it's a winding path, but I, you know, it's uh, we know from, from the sign behind you in your podcast, you are agile enough. Right. See how I did that? I know. I'm thanks for, the, thanks for bringing a, bringing a full circle here. I'm not even a marketing guy, but you know, these things just, just, yeah. just happen. So, you know, <laughs> nice. well, yeah, no, thanks so much for having me on the show. We want to thank Greg Kilstrom for discussing his new book, Meaningful Measurements of the Customer Experience with us. It's been a super, super cool conversation and I'm taking a ton away from this. How do we think better about measurements uh, and, and what it means to really make sense of that, that customer experience? And as always, you can find links to his books and links to all his other works in our show notes. So we want to pitch the conversation over to y'all and ask, what approaches do you use for measuring experiences? And what ideas do you have for better capturing uh, different kinds of experiences? How might we link together employee and customer experiences in our designs? As always, you can shoot us a message and get in conversation at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or pop into our LinkedIn page. And as always, as always, as always, thank you so much for your continued support for the podcast. I do understand there's other podcasts out there. It seems to be a very uh, popular medium right now and that you choose to spend your time with us is very much appreciated. So please, as always, make sure you keep your contributions, your ideas, and your financial support coming. We couldn't do it without you. Well, we could, but it would just be less fun. And you can always make a contribution to support the cost of the podcast through our website. And you can also sponsor an episode of EXD, if you'd so like, by sending us a message with your sponsorship opportunity and helping us begin the conversation with you. If you have any feedback, any ideas, any thoughts, please feel free to share that at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And you can subscribe to stay on top of all of the EXD news and be part of that EXD community. Head over to our website, giving us your email, and we'll make sure to get back in touch with you. And as always, be safe, be kind, be well, and please be here for the next experience by design.